I woke up in the night the other night uh, singing a song, which I don't often do. So I thought, okay, what's this about? It's a, an old song. And uh, trust me, I do listen to music that's current. Um, <laughs> my sons make sure of that. And there's some amazing bands out there. Um, and of course, Bethel, we're listening to their latest, latest uh, you know, music and so on. Pull it back a bit. Okay, it might slip at some point. Uh, but these, the two songs I'm going to sing today, because God's been sort of quickening that I need to keep singing. It's something I don't do so much anymore because we have a new generation of worship leaders emerging, which is so exciting. And having led for 25 years, I thought, you know, it's nice to take a back seat, but God said, no, you're not doing that. I don't have back seats. <laughs> All right, fair enough. There's some in my car, but that's about it. So, um, so this is a couple of songs that have been with me for a long time. I will top and tail my talk with the two songs. Um, and the, so, the, the word is um, God of Restoration. So while I'm singing my first song, I want you to think, what does God of Restoration mean to me? down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul and leads my path in righteousness for his name's sake. and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever though I Though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will not fear thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever the Lord is my shepherd I shall 
So, what does God of Restoration mean? Any ideas? Put your hand up and shout it out to me. Anyone? God of Restoration. Jill? Yes, God can restore broken relationships. That's a great one. Yes. Broken hearts. Wow. Anything else? Over here. Let's have some restoration. Yes. We're not left in ruins. Yes. Making something old new again. Gwyn? That's a good one. He can restore our relationship with ourselves. Yes? Yeah, from being lonely to having a full heart, also having a family. Yes. Making something beautiful again as it was meant to be. <sighs> the years that the locusts have eaten. We'll come back to that one. It's all over here. Anyone over here? Yes. Indeed, we shall lack nothing. He is our shepherd, Annabelle. None of us are so far gone that it cannot be brought back by God to a significant place of establishment. And in fact, better than it ever was before. Um, it's interesting because the Bible's full of stories of restoration. One early one is the story of Job. Job 42, 10 to 17, you don't have to look at it up now, but talks about how this man who suffered awful health for an awfully long time finally is restored and is more wealthy than he was before and he has more sheep and more oxen and more of the others and his health is back to normal. Um, and that's a very powerful story of God's faithfulness in the midst of trials. You see, God is in the business of restoration. It's what he does. No matter how damaged no matter how dark, how depraved, he can restore us if we let him. Joel 2.25, he restores the years the locusts have eaten, is a good verse. Of course, in the Middle East, when locusts ravage, they really ravage. And they're a particularly virulent breed out there. And they lay waste whole fields whole crops of fields, and um, everything's destroyed. And you're expecting a beautiful harvest, and suddenly everything is completely laid waste. And that's the end of your harvest. It's the end of sustenance. It's the end of everything. And for a period of time, Israel had a lot of trouble with locusts. And God said, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And sometimes in life, the locusts of life ravage us. It may be the locusts of illness, the locusts of depression, the locusts of, Ill, of um, uh, bad situations, okay, so constantly losing work or losing jobs, being out of uh, employment for a long periods of time, the locusts of poverty, but God can change all that in a moment. He's a powerful, loving father. And he is good, better than we ever can dare ask or imagine. 
Four things I've written down that come with his restoration. Healing. There's this whole sermon there. Um, do you know, I'm reading a book called Healing Unplugged at the moment by Bill Johnson and Randy Clark. Fascinating book. It's basically a transcribe of an interview between them. And uh, one of the things that really strikes me is really exciting is when God heals sovereignly. And that's without any intervention. Boom, he just heals. And there's loads of stories about that. And that's something I've not thought about. We pray for healing, and we will be praying at the end for anyone who wants to be healed. Um, but it's very powerful when you're just sitting in, uh, I guess sometimes in a meeting, and the presence of God comes in the meeting during the worship, and God just heals people. Sometimes many, many people are healed, boom, just like that. No one prays for them, just God sovereignly pours out the oil, if you like, of healing. And they are transformed. And that's so exciting. So, four things that come with restoration. Healing. Sanctification. That's a good word. Sanctification. What does that mean? Well, a little later I'll be showing you a film. We've got two films. Two songs and two films. Come on. What's not to love? A film that explains sanctification in a cartoon form. Oh, this is getting better and better. So we'll come to sanctification later. Deliverance. What's deliverance? Well, it could be being carried from a dangerous place all the way to a safe place. It's being set free from bondages which may have trapped us in our life, all our life. Addictions, maybe. Or illness, a particular illness. Or a mindset. John's been talking a lot about mindsets. And I've been thinking a lot about my mindset. And I find a lot of my time, I get locked into a particular pattern of thinking. You only have to talk to Amanda and the boys to know that I can be very set in my ways. <laughs> and one day, God sometimes says, well, try something different. Mix it up a bit. Why don't you not have two slices of toast first thing in the morning? Break out! <laughs> I uh, start my day with a cup of tea. I then go on to a cappuccino at the corner coffee house if I'm feeling particularly prosperous. I might have a light bite with that, I don't know. And then I'll have lunch, and lunch is usually sort of bready, sandwichy type stuff with fruit. And then I'll have a nibble in the afternoon, and then, but you know, it's a bit sad, isn't it? My life is routine, and I get to a certain age. That's my way. I'm stuck in my ways. No one's going to change me. I turn into a Yorkshireman progressively more as I get older. Um, but it's bizarre, isn't it? What's that? That's insane. Why should we live our life according to preset rules? And so, <laughs> uh, Amanda teases me. But actually, you know, sometimes I do get a bit stuck in my ways. And I, I, wanna, I don't want to get old. I don't want to be like that. And so restoration, freedom, can come through freedom from particular mindsets. Okay? 
I'll leave that one there. Let God sort of mature that, that seed in your heart. If you're like me, over a certain age, and you find yourself getting stuck in your ways. And the fourth thing that you get with restoration, and there are many others, but I've picked these four, just because I like them. Establishment. Okay, so let's go through them again. Healing, sanctification, and I'll explain that later. Deliverance, and establishment. What's establishment? What does establishment mean? Well, he set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. One of the films I was going to show you was U2's Live at Red Rocks, uh, back in 1984, I think it was. But we decided you probably all get so distracted by how young Bono looks. But it's great. It's a great song. And not amazing, least of all, for the fact that Edge and Adam Clayton swap instruments, so Edge plays the riff on, on bass guitar. It's really cool. But <laughs> it's Psalm 40. You two are singing Psalm 40, and they used to close their show with this as an encore every time, Psalm 40. And they would get the crowd singing, How long? to sing this song, and they'd all go out think, singing, singing the Bible, basically, at the end of a U2 concert, because it was catchy. But uh, verse 2, he set my feet upon a rock, he made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and fear. I won't try and be Bono, because I can't. But um, it's a powerful, powerful thing to be singing the Bible, especially in a massive you know, stadium like that, a rock concert. And so he establishes us. That's the fourth point of restoration. God establishes us. He gives us a place to belong. So sanctification and healing are to do with identity, having our identity restored. Peter tells a great story. I'm sure he won't mind me telling in him not being here, but of how he was searching for his identity and he searched in many places. And it wasn't until he met with Jesus properly and said, Real, you know, God, God met with him. And it wasn't very dramatic. It wasn't very spectacular. Actually, it was over a coffee break in a leader's weekend. People were just chatting to him. And God spoke to those, through those people. And uh, it was amazing. He suddenly realized who he was. And it's been challenging to see him being transformed since that day. It's been wonderful, but it keeps us on our toes because his identity has changed and it's challenging me in my identity. Where's my identity? My identity is not in my age, thankfully. My identity is not in David Simmons, you know, once uh, was a performer many years ago. My identity isn't in my singing. My identity isn't in my writing, my job, none of that. My identity is in him. It has to be. And God has been leading me on a journey of that for many, many years of where my identity is. So he establishes us in a family and he establishes our identity. So healing, sanctification, deliverance, and establishment. For those of you who are taking notes, those are the four points. Meatloaf. Very tasty. He's also a very large rock singer. And he once sang a song, 
I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. And of course, nobody knows what that is, and I don't really want to know. Thank you very much. But could you imagine if Jesus said, the cross covers everything for love, but it won't cover that. <laughs> Hang on a second, Jesus. What? Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. It covers 333 sins. What are they? They are a list. Can you imagine? A list of 333 sins that are covered by the cross, but not everything. Well, hang on, what if I did that? Oh, no, <laughs> that's not covered. Everything else is, but this isn't, that isn't. This is covered, but that isn't covered. But religion does that, doesn't it? It messes with your mind. It creates lists of things that are good and bad. But that's rubbish, because God wipes everything out. No matter how dark, no matter how depraved, you can come to the cross and be washed clean, be completely transformed. He restores our relationship with him. He restores our relationship with others. He places our feet upon a rock. In the war, um, in Holland, Amsterdam, the Nazis moved in and occupied the land. I have to apologize to the PA guys for twitching my mic. And uh, a family called the Ten Boom family decided to create a hiding place in their home and hide some of the Jews, the Jewish families who were hiding from the Nazis. And they fed them, and there was a little partition across, and it was quite a cool hiding place until they were rumbled. I don't know how they were rumbled, I can't remember, but... Basically, they were, the, the guards came, and they were carted away, and um, it was a, a seemingly very tragic story. The father, a lovely man, um, you really get a sense of the father heart of God when you read his words, and he comforts Corrie as they go off in the cart together, and they're carted, taken to different prisons, and then eventually the girls, Corrie and Betsy, end up in Ravensbrück con concentration camp. And Corrie cannot bear it. She's angry. She's bitter. She's frustrated. But her sister Betsy goes and takes Jesus with her into the concentration camp. And Betsy is beaten and senseless many, many times and is starved and is skin and bone. And she says, Corrie, no hate, only love. There's a scene where she's being brutally beaten by a guard. And Corrie shouts at the guard, and Betsy says, no hate, only love. And Betsy dies. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> but those words resound in Corrie's heart, and she's actually let out of Ravensbrück concentration camp because of a clerical error. She wasn't supposed to be set free. She was supposed to be killed, executed, but in fact, she got set free instead. And she dedicated her life to tramping around, as she called it, the world, telling people about God and his love. And in 1947, this is a story that she tells. It's not in the book, The Hiding Place. It's after The Hiding Place. 
1947, she'd come from Holland to Germany with a message that God forgives. So she'd had an encounter with Jesus. And she herself remembers her father's words and Betsy's words, and they really encouraged her. And so she goes to a church in Munich, and she has an encounter with someone she wasn't expecting. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hatched clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I'd just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs. It was 1947, and I'd come to Germany with the message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean forever. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and his brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored scap with a skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Now the man was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Robinsbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, thankfully he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did in there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, his hand came out. Will you forgive me? It could not have been many seconds he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. And he still, I still stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that was stretched out before me. And as I did so, a cre an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So, we talked about sanctification. <clears throat> we talked about atonement, or if I didn't, I will now. <laughs> it's another funny word. Sanctification and atonement. What is he on about? Someone once said, atonement is like at one. Atone. You're made at one with God. We're going to watch a film now. I've been um, introduced to these films by my sons, The Bible Project. Some of you in the youth will have seen this, so I apologize. The rest of you, just enjoy this film. It explains the principles of biblical atonement very clearly.
we all long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Yeah, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. And the biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to his sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. 
it covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in his world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us, so we can now live at peace with God. So that's the meaning behind Jesus' death. But there's more to the story. Yeah, the New Testament makes this powerful claim that Jesus' death was not final. He rose from the dead. And so he's the sacrifice who broke the power of death and evil, which means that he lives on to offer his life to anyone who will accept it. He is the perfect sacrifice to which all the previous sacrifices were pointing all along. So because of Jesus, the early Christians stopped participating in the ritual of animal sacrifice. But they were given new rituals. There are two that Jesus taught his followers to perform. The first is called baptism. Just as Jesus died, so going into the water becomes this personal connection you now have to his death. And in coming out of the water, you, so to speak, come back to life with Jesus. So baptism is the sacred ritual that joins your story to Jesus' death and his resurrection. The second ritual is called the Lord's Supper which is a reenactment of Jesus' last meal with his disciples. And he used bread and wine to portray his coming death as a sacrifice. And so now, followers of Jesus, they take the bread and the cup regularly to remember and to participate in the power of Jesus' death and in his life. So these rituals, they remind us of God's love and encourage us to live a life of love and grace. But they do more than that. They connect us to a new life source, The very power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that can deal with the evil in our own lives and transform us into people who lead lives of love and peace. So the the Bible Project illustrates it very vividly and very simply how Jesus' death can completely clean the rubbish in our lives. And there ain't nothing that can't be cleaned. I mean, the guy in the concentration camp, that's a pretty heavy, heavy burden to carry. But Jesus took it on the cross. One of the characters I love very much in the Bible is Simon Peter. We love him because he's like us. He really messed up. He, he had foot and mouth disease, bless him. He kept putting his foot in his mouth. Uh, there's a wonderful story when he says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And the son of man must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands and, uh, of the um, chiefs, the priests and everyone else and be killed And Peter said, hang on a second, that's not going to happen to you. So one minute he's saying, you are the son of the living God. Next minute he's rebuking God. It's really funny. And there was a time when he, in his passion to follow Jesus, jumped out of the boat when he saw Jesus walking on the water and wanted to walk as well. And he did for a while, and then he saw the winds and waves and he fell. He was impetuous. He was passionate. And yet, frequently was led astray by his emotions. 
uh, and the classic story that all the Gospels tell, unequivocally, is the story of his betrayal of Jesus. Not betrayal, denial. Judas betrayed, Peter uh, denied. He's just, I don't know the guy. I, I, I never knew him. I wasn't there, despite having a Galilean accent, which is, I guess, like Geordie. <laughs> no, I won't. I'll resist the temptation. But, <laughs> you know, you can imagine. He, 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 the Bible says he went out and he whipped, wept bitterly because he had denied knowing Jesus. And so, after Jesus died, he felt wretched, utterly wretched, because he was never going to see Jesus ever again, as far as he was concerned. That was it. He blew it. And um, he probably wouldn't have wanted to call himself a disciple anymore, because he ruined everything. And there's a wonderful detail in the book of Mark, when the angel appears and says, Jesus is risen, he says, go and tell the disciples and Peter, Mark 16, verse 7, because Peter had to be told specially the Lord is risen because it means just that much more for him. It wasn't the end of the story as he thought it was. Now, another uh, film now from the Lumo Project, which is another amazing resource online. And I'll put links in for those who listen to this on, uh, on, um, online afterwards. Um, but basically, this film is from the Lumo Project. Lumo Project tells the story of Jesus using narration. And uh, the actors are speaking Aramaic, and it's particularly vivid and beautifully told. Uh, this particular film is when Jesus appears to the disciples after he'd risen again and specifically has something to tell Peter. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. 
When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. God of restoration, he takes a life and he restores it powerfully. No matter who you are, I think that's on. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, Jesus restores broken lives. Do you need your life to be restored today? This next song I'm going to sing is uh, the song I woke up singing, actually, that night. Um, it's an old Dave Bilborough song from the 80s. Yes, all right. And I couldn't find it anywhere online because it was uh, only available on tape and vinyl. But uh, a certain West Ham supporter, Mr. Watts, managed to find a copy of it for me. I used to sing it many years ago in schools and things, and uh, it's just got a very strong message of 
the God who will pursue us to the ends of the earth. There is a poem called The Hound of Heaven where they describe, the writer describes Jesus pursuing us to the ends of the earth. We can't get away from him because he loves us so much that he will pursue each one of us and call us by name and bring us into his family, the hound of heaven. And the song is called Unwearying Love. And we'll sing it and then we'll just spend some time worshipping God and you in your heart can respond accordingly to what you think God is saying. Do you need to be restored to Jesus? Now's your day. Do you need to be restored to someone else? Maybe you need to go make a phone call when you leave here. 